Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Welcome to the podcast. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Dr. John Hall. Uh, John is a rare combination of serious academic and skilled mountaineer. He is the or a research professor in the field of environmental sciences, a founding director of the Mountain Environments Research Institute at Western Washington University, as well as the co-founder and executive director of the American Climber Science Program. He has led dozens of expeditions on five continents in extreme locations from deep caves to tropical rainforests, deserts, and to the world's highest mountains. He is a lifetime fellow of the Explorers Club in New York City, a certified scuba rescue diver, and has spent many years with search and rescue teams. John is also the author of the book, Icefall, Adventures at the Wild Edges of Our Dangerous Changing Planet. John, welcome. Thank you. Now, a little bit later, we're going to be talking about a expedition you took in 2014 to the Himalayas, a research expedition, and those high mountains nearly killed you. But first, I want to take a few minutes before we hear about that experience and understand what led you to being there. Now, the combination of mountaineer and research scientist, both those by themselves require extraordinary commitment, dedication, and hard work, but you combine the two. First, mountaineering. What got you started in mountaineering? Well, I think with mountaineering, it, you either, if it's, you love it, you know, from childhood. And I was a kid growing up in Georgia when we didn't have really that many mountains, but uh, I just was always entranced by the books and magazine articles and everything else about climbing Mount Everest and all of the high mountains of the world. And I mean, you just start out on Boy Scouts when you've learned to repel and sort of do some of that basic climbing, you know, sometimes it just, something gets in your blood, you know, and for some people it's music, for some people it's other things. For me, it was mountaineering. So. So you've been climbing since uh, early age then? Well, I mean, like I said, I grew up in Georgia, so we did a little bit in Boy Scouts, but there just wasn't that much of an opportunity back east. Um, and I did, you know, went to Duke undergrad, then Georgia for law school. So that whole time back east, I sort of dabbled very slightly, but it just, there wasn't the mentors, there wasn't the uh, opportunities to do a lot of climbing. But then when I started working on my PhD, at University of Arizona in Tucson, there was rock everywhere and everyone climbed. And so suddenly, you know, this kind of side of me that I hadn't really had a chance to explore because I played on the rugby team and played volleyball for Duke and so forth. So I did a lot of sports back East, but uh, it was once I moved to the West and had that opportunity, I kind of pivoted uh, almost 360 and really dedicated myself to those kind of outdoor pursuits. Now, in Arizona, was that mostly technical rock climbing? Um, yeah, a lot of, uh, I mean, 
uh, mainly trad uh, rock climbing. I'm trying to think if I ever climbed any ice in Arizona, and I don't think I did. And traditional rock climbing using gear um, is kind of the best foundation for all climbing because you learn how to set anchors, you learn how to put gear and blaze and other things that you trust with your life. Um, and in the case of Arizona, there's a lot of big, long climbs. And so uh, you do things like hanging belays and other things that um, really give you a good background for when you go into the high mountains. Then what led you into the high mountains? Um, that is interesting question. As I said, I always was kind of interested in it, but um, as an academic, it's not an easy thing. You either sort of choose, all right, I'm going to you know, be a guide and live in the mountains, or I'm going to have a career. <laughs> um, and not that guiding isn't a career, but you know, if you want, I guess, to have insurance and, and uh, retirement benefits when you <laughs> are older, you choose something different. And so in academia, there wasn't that many opportunities until I... Uh, I applied for and got a Fulbright fellowship to Nepal. And so I'd been very interested in the high mountains and had done a lot of rock climbing and had done a little bit of ice climbing in preparation and uh, dabbled with some of the Mexican volcanoes and a few things down in South America, but it was all just sort of, you know, tentative. But then when I got the Fulbright, I was able to go for a full year into Nepal and I spent that year taking uh, Nepali graduate students into the mountains. And basically, we would go in for a uh, month, and um, I would take them out there, show them how to collect. Well, they knew how to collect plants, and we would, uh, show, we would show them how to take the plant data, the vegetation data we collected, and relate it back to satellite remote uh, imagery. So using satellite remote sensing. and. Um, that combination was something that they just had never done before. Like I said, they'd spent a lot of time in the field, but combining it with kind of the bigger picture of satellite remote sensing. And so I spent an entire year doing that. And it was great because I would go with the students and we would collect samples up to a base camp. And then they would uh, kind of collect in the base camp and I would duck off for two days and run over and climb uh, a little, first it was a 6,000 meter peak, you know, and, or 5,000 meter peak, then a 6,000 meter peak and sort of slowly got higher and higher peaks. And then as my time was ending, I got lucky because the whole time I had been there, I'd had to uh, hire a local Nepali company and these five Sherpa brothers, well, it was actually seven Sherpa brothers, but only five of them were guiding, but still it was the a family affair and they had handled all my logistics. And so when they um, got two clients to go to Everest, they knew I'd been spending a lot of time in the mountains and that I was, you know, super fit and everything. And so what they did was they offered me the opportunity to go and collect data as well as help kind of guide and work with these two guys on Mount Everest. So I basically got to go essentially just for uh, the cost of the permit, which was a wonderful opportunity for an academic, you know, we don't have money. So um, being able to do Everest <laughs> that inexpensively was incredibly lucky. And so, yeah, just that Fulbright really, like I said, 5,000, then 6,000, then 8,000 before you know it. So it was a great opportunity. And those mountains kept calling you to go higher and higher? Exactly, exactly. Well, 
when I was a kid, I always wanted to uh, uh, do the, uh, I did a rod, do the Ironman and climb Mount Everest. Those were sort of my three goals when I was in middle school and high school. And uh, so, yeah, Everest was always there. And once when the opportunity arose, there was no question. I didn't even have to think about it. Let's go to the academic part of your life. What led you down this path of environmental science and research? Well, so I think like a lot of people, you go to undergrad, and you just have no idea what you want to do. And, and um, not really knowing, I sort of waffled back and forth. And so I basically took a track that allowed me to go to law school, as well as took a bunch of environmental classes, because I'd always been interested in climbing and being outdoors. But I wasn't sure what the environmental uh, classes had to offer in terms of job prospects. So I went to law school just to kind of get a different feel for, I guess, how things get done. And I'm super glad I did, because until you go to law school, you don't understand how regulations dictate everything about life. I mean, the size of the door for your car, you know, the type of glass that's in a shower stall. And um, so that it was a huge kind of awakening of, all right, if you want to get things done, if you want to protect the environment, you have to understand the regulations and you have to have the evidence to make that happen. What I realized was, you know, lawyers don't aren't scientists. And so if I wanted to make kind of a difference in the environmental field, I couldn't just be a lawyer. I also had to, you know, be able to collect the data I needed to prove my point. And so that's why I went and got my PhD after law school. And so that was, I looked at a lot of different uh, types of fields. And for the most part, um, a lot of science is about small scale stuff. You know, how this fungus is impacted by different soil types, for example. And when you think about how you can make a difference from a policy standpoint, those tiny studies don't make that big of a difference. And so what I did was I began working with satellite remote sensing because rather than looking at a single plant or a single you know, square meter, you're looking at hundreds of square meters or thousands of square miles, uh, depending on the size of the satellite imagery that you're using. And so I loved it because it gave me concrete numbers, which is something you can take into a courtroom or into a, a policymaking arena. It allowed me to look at things at kind of a regional scale. And, but the most important thing is when you're taking satellite imagery, looking at it from a satellite down, you're not sure what you're seeing on the ground. So it also meant I had to go outdoors and I had to spend a lot of time collecting ground data that I could then relate back to the satellite imagery. So it turned out to be kind of a perfect marriage for me of something that gave me potentially policy legal outcomes and yet meant that I had to go out in the field and collect a lot of field data. How are you able to combine your academics with your mountaineering? When you look at environmental change, it's not happening in the places where everyone lives and studies. Instead, it's happening you know, in the Arctic, on the tops of mountains, in the deepest deserts, or the bottoms of the oceans. And so I realized that if I really wanted to do something with the environment that was kind of now rather than 200 years from now with climate change. It, it had to be somewhere of these more kind of uh, vulnerable environments. And that's why I've worked in caves and deserts and uh, all the places I have around the world, because they're the places where you see change the, uh, most directly. 
And of course, the fact that I love mountains and that they're uh, probably the best natural laboratory you have, just like I said, it, just, it worked out perfectly. You know, marriage made in heaven. So let's go to that first climb on Everest. There's something about that climb that still uh, is remarkable. You made that climb without crampons. First, uh, for those non-climber friends of ours, what are crampons? Well, so back in, um, there's a real famous case back in the, um, I want to say it was the 1930s or 40s. People were trying to climb uh, the Eiger in, um, no, it wasn't the Eiger. It was one of the mountains in the Alps. And uh, an ice storm came in and put ice on the rock. And because they had no way to really stick on the ice, all of these super famous climbers died back in the day. And that actually, one of the guys who was par, uh, lost some friends was a guy named Vibram, who created Vibram Rubber. And so that changed how we began looking at footwear for climbing. I'm sorry, it's a little historical here, but I just thought it was really interesting. And so from there, you know, we got rubber to stick on the rock, but um, and in the past, they would just hack steps out and use hobnail boots. And what we've done with crampons is we've taken the idea of a hobnail boot or spikes on the bottom of your boot and uh, allowed you to have the rubber for when you have the rock. So you have the vibram sole. And then if you hit the ice, you can just attach the spikes so that you can remove them back and forth. And so that gives you a lot more flexibility. So basically, yeah, crampons are just uh, adding spikes to the bottom of your uh, shoes. And they're vicious. I mean, they're an inch longer sometimes. Um, I, we always, I always looked at him and thought if you were making a horror movie, you could have somebody who would like, would kick somebody with a pair of crampons on. But like I said, a lot of those early people didn't have that technology. And so when you look at someone like Mallory, who potentially was the first person to summit Mount Everest, he wouldn't have had those crampons on. And so when I got to Everest and was climbing it, I quickly saw that the snow was gone. I mean, I looked at all these historical photos and like the second step and all these things, they used to have these ramps of snow and now the snow is just gone. It's all bare rock kind of everywhere. And so when I got there and started climbing and uh, I realized pretty quickly that, you know, this is all rock. It would be a lot in some ways easier for a rock climber like me to climb without the crampons. And the thing with the crampons is they're kind of a safety thing. I mean, they're, um, you, if you're wear, wearing just boots, you're more likely to slip. And so if you're at altitude and you're worried about, you know, losing your ability to uh, function properly, having that safety net, it, it's really helpful to have something that will grab a hold of the rock. But because I had been living there for a year and was really, really well acclimatized and uh, the climb was super easy for me after spending that much time there, I realized I didn't really need that safety net. And so I wanted to find out, you know, if Mallory could have done it. And granted, it's so much easier now than it was. You know, he was climbing with nothing. I've had people all around me because there was uh, probably 30, 40 people that summited the same day I did, kind of in front and behind. So I wasn't alone like he was, would have been. But at the same time, I just want to see, you know, from a boot standpoint. And the other thing is, is, if you can climb Mount Everest without crampons, that says a lot about climate change. And I was up there at over 8,000 meters in just a uh, light shirt. 
So I just had on a, effectively just the, you know, kind of a R1 insulated shirt, you know, long sleeve shirt. I had my down suit all the way unzipped. I had my down suit open so that all I had was just a pair of lightweight legging, uh, you know, kind of insulated pants and, and that was it. And so for it to be that warm, because there's so much solar radiation, you're so high. To me, it was, like I said, just an incredible evidence of the changes that are going on around the world because of climate change. And Was there something about Mallory that also inspired to climb without crampons? Yeah, exactly. Like I said, I wanted to see if he could have done it, how difficult it would have been. And certainly with the ice, it would have made a big difference. But because um, I know he had to cut steps. I just wanted to know if it could be done. And you made it to the top? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was... Uh, Super great. Yeah, and I was lucky because I re- reached it right just after sunrise. And the last couple of years before I got up there, um, it had been really uh, foggy and cloudy and really poor summit conditions. And so um, digital cameras were kind of coming along really quickly at that point. And so basically, my the year I was there, I was one of the first people who had a really good digital camera at the same time, there was really good visibility. And so I came back and published a bunch of my pictures of, on very, in various places and people had never seen anything like it. I made it to the top and without any crampons on, I'm like spinning around, taking pictures everywhere. It was kind of one of the most perfect days ever. And that's one of the reasons I've had such a great long-term love affair with Everest is because that first time was so, so incredible. Caving. What is a mountaineer doing going inside the, <laughs> the earth and into a cave? Tell us well, about Well, if that. you live back east where there's no mountains, caves are vertical mountains. I mean, it's mind-boggling. You'll go and there's thousand-foot walls underground. And so you'll, you can rappel down them. And unfortunately, the rock's pretty lousy, so you don't do a lot of climbing. But a lot of times you do have to climb. So if you'll crawl along a cave passage and you reach one of these, they call them wells if you're looking down or domes if you're looking up. And so, yeah, I've, I got in one and looked up and was like, holy moly, this is incredible. Yeah, I lived in Kentucky, and so I would spend uh, for a few years and I would spend uh, kind of summers or whenever I could out in Yosemite. But then when I was on board on the weekends, I'd get in those caves because it really is. I mean, it's underground mountains is what I used to call it. And it can be incredibly impressive. Crazy how vulnerable you are. And especially when you start doing things like cave diving. I've done some cave diving and uh, I kind of quit because I went to an International Cave Congress in Greece, and I was uh, traveling around. We were traveling around a little bit, visiting some caves, and I was with this, uh, shared a room with this British cave diver. He was pretty famous, well-known. And um, I, basically, he was dying of lung cancer. And I was like, oh, you know, when I found out, you know, I was sort of like buying him a beer and, uh, you know, told him, oh, it's just terrible and everything. He's like, not really, because all my friends are dead. I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, you know, because I'm a, you know, extreme cave diver over the years, every person I've cave dived with has died. And so I'm just the last of the group. And it was like, whoa, 
And so, like I said, I had done some cave diving before that, but I uh, have grown, I grew a lot less interested in it because it is, and there's just some uh, crazy, terrible stories. But at the same time, when you're in a cave uh, and you can actually float when you're diving, it's so amazing because there's so many times you'll be in a cave, you're like, oh, I wonder what's up in that ledge. And you can never get up there. But when you're diving, you just swim up and go check it out. So, uh, yeah, caving is, you know, it, it, it seems like fun a lot of times for the people who just go in for like a day trip. But once you start adding in diving and some of the serious climbing and so forth, then it uh, changes dimensions really quickly. In 2014, you went on an expedition to Nepal, an expedition that almost killed you. What was the goal of that expedition? Since I had gone in uh, 2010 is when I climbed Everest before, and I collected a bunch of rock samples and snow and other things while I was on that climb. And so my idea with most of my research is to revisit areas. So go and collect a lot of as much data as possible and then go back five years later or 10 years later and so forth. And so the idea was to go back five years later and also to climb it from the other side. So I climbed it from the Tibet side the first time, and I was going to come back and climb it from the Nepal side. And um, this time I brought – the first time it was just me actually doing the climbing. And this time I brought a team of six, and the idea was we were going to – because there would be a lot more of us, we could collect a lot more snow. We brought uh, spectrometers and a lot of other uh, gear so we could uh, collect a lot more data. And so that was the overall goal. I, I got money from the National Science Foundation and a bunch of other groups. Again, my friends, the Sherpa brothers, helped organize the logistics. And so I also brought a bunch of Nepali students. And so as we were trekking in, uh, we were interviewing the locals on climate change and doing a lot of plant sampling, uh, collecting uh, vegetation and water quality samples and so forth. So really trying to maximize the uh, value out of it. And yeah, it was the idea with the reason, one of the reasons Mount Everest is so such an awesome place is first of all, it's one of the few mountains that goes up into the actual stratosphere. So you're getting a lot of long distance transport when you start looking at things like black carbon transport or dust moving around in the atmosphere. The other thing is, is because it's got India on one side and China on the other side. So depending on which side of the mountain you're climbing, you get different pollution sources. And you can kind of compare the two largest clusters of humanity on Earth and see how they're kind of differentially affecting the air around them. So um, that was the idea was we was going to do a comparison of the two sides and the two you know, major countries on either side. And if I understand correctly, part of this was you're collecting snow samples. Yep. And the reason because snow is such an incredible way to look at what's in the atmosphere. Um, if you've ever had a cup of water, and left it out for a week or two, it kind of gets a little coating of dust on it, right? And so the same thing happens with snow. It's just a little surface that anything that lands on it's going to stick. And so um, it allows, in between each snowstorm, basically you collect snow for a while, and then you get another layer of dust, and then another layer of dust. And over time, you can get ice cores that have annual resolutions of uh, what happened for that year's climate. But what we look at is more short term. You know, what is those top layers of snow? What's happened in the last year or two years or uh, five years? And so we try to revisit places often enough that we can 
compare and see how things have changed over the last few years. And so that was the idea, yeah, to go back and just effectively collect snow all the way up the mountain. You get to base camp. What happened? Well, so uh, when you get to base camp, uh, one of the first things that you normally do is you hold a puja. And that's a Buddhist ceremony of blessing to ask effectively the mountain for its permission to climb and ask it not to kill you effectively. And so it was really difficult that year. Um, A lot of people felt morally conflicted. Um, Some guy trying to get famous and he was going to wingsuit off the summit. And so it was, there was very highly commercialized. Um, was they must have gotten somebody cheap because they were utterly unscrupulous. And, um, yeah, it just the whole feel that year was kind of gaudy. And it just, everyone, you know, the Sherpa and the, especially the uh, kind of Buddhist monks along the way, no one was, everyone felt like it had a really weird feel to it. And so we had that puja, again, open to kind of smooth everything out and, Normally, the pujas, uh, it's kind of a nice, bright, sunny day, and uh, so you feel good about what's happened in the puja. Um, but this one was kind of rainy, and it was sleety and just overcast, and again, no one felt great about the puja either. But we thought, well, let's just go ahead and push on. Uh, I knew most of the guys I was climbing with. Um, I was at base camp, um, but the rest of my team was actually still further down the mountain. They were kind of acclimatizing more slowly, and I had just gotten up there to help get things moving along. So by the time they got up there, we could get moving. And so the, normally you have the puja, and then the next day, everybody, all the teams send their teams up. And so, um, again, everyone left at 2, 3 in the morning and uh, began climbing. And so what happened was about three-quarters of the way up the, uh, through the uh, icefall, you reach a point where you come really close to the uh, kind of north ridge of Everest, uh, or I guess it's the west ridge of Everest. And um, there's also, there's a lot of cliffs above you. And so what happened was the route kind of came below those cliffs and a giant chunk just fell off and hit uh, the teams. And normally if a giant chunk fell off like that and hit a people, it only kill one or two people because everyone's normally very spread out. But the thing that was terrible about that day was um, right below that overhang, uh, one of the bridges had slipped. Uh, one of the, you know, those uh, ladders that you always see picture, people's, pictures of people climbing. Well, one of those, the end had slipped. And so everyone, had, they had stopped and somebody had had to climb across and they were resetting it up and everything. And so people just kept coming and coming and coming, and this huge backlog of people developed right underneath the uh, ice fall. And so in front of where I was, um, our guy who was kind of the leader of that day, uh, the Sherpa leader, he got up there and immediately took a look and was like, oh, shit, we can't be underneath this. And so he told all of our guys, just throw your stuff down and run for it. In the meantime, they'd gotten the ladder back up, and so three of my guys had gotten across, and one of them was basically on the ladder when it broke. And so the guy who was on the ladder got killed, and we didn't know what happened to 
everybody else. You know, basically everyone sort of scrambled. We all uh, kind of met back in base camp slowly over time. And um, basically, yeah, just spent the whole day trying to figure out who was alive and who was dead. And uh, that bodies would come. Uh, helicopters came in pretty quickly and they began um, helicoptering the bodies out. And so, yeah, it was just a horrific, horrific day. So one of your parties is killed crossing that ladder bridge. How'd the other teammates fare? In terms of injuries, nobody was injured, but uh, Ashman, who passed away, I mean, he had a nine-month-old daughter, and he was one of the younger guys and super, super nice. I mean, I had just, like, a couple hours before been joking with him about racing through the icefall and who could see, you know, who could get up at the fastest and so forth. He was a super, super nice guy. And, um, you know, these, these guys all had known him their whole life and lived with him and uh, climbed with him and were, you know, sharing tents with him and stuff. So kind of from an uh, emotional standpoint, and I say that delicately because Sherpa don't typically exhibit emotions at all and are very guarded with their kind of emotions, but, you know, they were devastated. You know, that was, that was their good friend and it could have been them. You know, they were, uh, you know, within a hundred feet on either side of getting hit by it. So it was, it was one, it was incredibly difficult. Um, so yeah, in terms of physical wounds, no, there wasn't any, uh, anybody else um, except him. But it's a, it's a heck of an emotional punch in the stomach. Yeah, for sure. Well, and actually his roommate uh, or tent mate, Dawa was the, highest ranking and I'm not sure how they rank. Um, but he was, he's actually was a Buddhist priest monk. And, uh, in addition to having summited Everest five times. And, um, so it was kind of interesting because my team was all Sherpa. We didn't, you know, well, most of the teams that are there, are, you know, somebody, you know, they're American or European guides, and then they just hire Sherpas. But in my case, it was just, we were all, there was all Sherpas and there was just a few uh, Americans going along with them. And so because we were the Sherpa group, um, again, this was 10 years ago. Now there's lots of Sherpa groups, but we were the only group. And so it, um, basically everyone kind of came to our tent. And so, you know, everybody was upset and they came to see Dawa. Dawa ended up leading a lot of pujas afterwards as we tried to kind of, uh, you know, celebrate their life and mourn their passing. And then again, try to, climb again so it um yeah it was a, a crazy crazy time to be there but i felt really lucky to be part of that sherpa group rather than just you know some sterile uh western group so the accident happens so what was the next part of the expedition were you able to move up on the mountain or did you have to go to alternate plan b well so the idea was to um continue climbing. And so in order to facilitate that, NBC offered $100,000 to the uh, families of the people who had died. So because the uh, funeral benefits, basically, if you die summoning or if you die climbing Everest, um, the funeral death benefit, it was only $450. Um, and so, you know, that's not enough. You know, they got you know, like I said, this, he had a nine month old daughter. So paying for her school and all. So they offered to pay, uh, offered a hundred thousand dollars. 
and a lot of other people in the area, um, like we all began getting money together. So we were putting money together and, uh, we were making this fund that we were going to give to the, uh, families. And this is the tail end of the Nepali civil war. So kind of a little background. So back in the eighties, I guess, mid eighties, Nepal had a King and there was a civil war going on that was funded mainly by China. So it was uh, kind of this Maoist communist, uh, revolution. And so, their, most of their strength was in uh, rural areas, but especially in the mountains and the national parks. During the Civil War, the Maoists kicked the army uh, and all government functions out of most of the national parks, especially the mountain ones. And uh, the Everest Sagamartha Park is one of the few where there actually was still a, a government presence. But the other, uh, Makalu and the rest of them, the Maoists had kicked them out. And so if you wanted to go climb, you know, Baroon, for example, Brunse, um, you had to pay the Maoists to allow you to come into uh, their park because <laughs> they had taken it over. And so the, the conflict, had, you know, the king was assassinated and the conflict had sort of died down. And um, they were they spent like 10 years or five years trying to create a constitution. And so there was kind of this void of power for that five years. And th that was during this time period. And so uh, basically the local Maoists in the area heard, oh, there's $100,000 and more um, that's going to be given out. And they went and they came. So they immediately came to the uh, base camp. And it was weird because you began seeing all these guys in like, you know, dress shoes and uh, not climbing here. <laughs> Uh, Nepalis, and they were all part of the basically the mouse brought in a bunch of muscle, and um, they said they were gonna. They said they they wanted to administrate the money, and so they gave them kind of the first chunk of money, and they immediately like in front of everyone began handing it out, and because my friend Dawa was the highest ranking uh, Buddhist, they tried to give him like a thousand dollars, and he's like no, this is not our money. You can't do this. And um, so when everyone realized what was happening, they said, all right, no, the mouse can't have the money. And the mouse said, well, if we don't get the money, um, no one gets to climb and we'll break the legs of anybody who tries to, any uh, Sherpa who tries to climb. And so you more and more strangers in city clothes began coming into camp. And yeah, people started getting beat up in the night. And again, because we were the the, the Sherpa group, everyone would kind of come to our tent and exchange information and uh, try and hide from the malice. And um, so it was really eerie watching all this happen in real time because it wasn't reported in any of the press or anything. You know, no one, I mean, there was little hints occasionally, but, you know, no one was proud of it, I guess. Some of the Nepalis were proud of what was happening. And so they didn't really talk much about it. And so anyway, they, um, after they began beating people up, more and more of the teams began leaving. And then towards the end, it was basically my team, because my team, my, the Sherpa guys were like, you know, you do great work, you're science, uh, you know, you're training these students, we really want you to do this work. And then there was a, uh, U.S. Army team that was like, hey, we're not getting pushed around by no malice. And uh, like one or two other teams that were sort of hanging on. 
And then the Maoists said, all right, we're going to beat up, uh, break the leg of any Westerner who tries to climb. And once they sort of made that transition to threat from threatening Nepalis to threatening Westerners, um, that's when my friends were like, all right, yeah, we have to leave this. This isn't going to end well. Um, but it actually is ironic because basically the Maoists sort of threw their entire hand into this and everyone ended up leaving. They didn't get any money. And everyone was so pissed at how it turned out in terms of, you know, the Sherpas got a little bit of money, but they basically didn't get paid for the year. And all of the businesses that depended on climbing, uh, the locals, they didn't get any money for the year. And so the Maoists basically kind of blew their load and lost. Um, and so after that, the earthquake came the next year. And um, the Maoists couldn't respond. And so a bunch of foreign aid came in and uh, basically the Maoists never recovered and totally disappeared. Um, it was very weird because from 2010 to 2014, the Maoist presence was very strong and hadn't changed. And then from 2014 to when I back in 2019, it utterly disappeared. Um, when I was there in 14, you know, there were still hammer and sickles painted on buildings. Basically, if you didn't have a hammer and sickle painted on your building in some places, they would burn it down and so forth. And two, you know, five years later, there was nothing. So incredible amount of change. And that, so, and that was the event was them trying to, they tried to take over Everest and ended up losing everything because of it. So you come off the mountain at Everest, but you wanted to continue your work. So where'd you go? Well, and so that's the way I had a lot of talk with the, again, the two Sherpa brothers. One is based in Kathmandu, and the other one was is kind of the leader of the team there on the mountain. And so with Satphone and in person, I would talk to the two of them sort of, you know, like, well, what are we going to do here? And they're like, well, we want this, you know, we want you to continue. We wanted to continue. I mean, we're doing, you know, this, this research. I don't know if I told you. Oh, I forgot to tell you. So one of the things we were going to do is we actually had, had talked to NASA and they were going to have a satellite come overhead on our summit day on Everest so that we could have the satellite imagery coming down and we would collect the data up. Oh, and how cool so, is that? Yeah, we didn't want to lose all that stuff. So we were like, all right, how can we? And so we started looking around at, you know, we lost a month because of all this posturing back and forth with the mouse. And so we knew we only had a couple weeks at most. So we were like, all right, we can't do an 8,000 meter peak. It's got to be lower, 7,000 meters. But we still wanted to be on the border, kind of the boundary between China and India, um, and to have a lot of the same kind of physical characteristics as uh, Everest has in terms of being a somewhat independent mountain, so we could get good data off it and so forth. And again, it, was, it had to be somewhere that we could get a permit for relatively straightforwardly uh, in that short a time period. And so we looked around and we ended up on this mountain called uh, Himalong which is uh, on the kind of Annapurna Massif. And it actually is a really cool location because it's when the uh, Tibetan army was fleeing the Chinese invasion, it was the pass that they came through. And actually there's a Tibetan village, call, uh, I don't know what you call it, a outpost or whatever, just across the border in Nepal from, you know, across the Tibetan border. So basically they got across and just stopped. And, um, I wrote, that was one of the places where we began our, uh, climb there. So, um, so we went to what was effectively the same type of location, but 
I couldn't ask my Sherpa friends, like I said, they were kind of, they were devastated by what had happened. First of all, by uh, Ashman's loss, but then how their fellow countrymen were beating them up and trying to steal the money and close the mountain. I mean, it was, you know, because it was, they knew people from both sides, you know, so um, civil war is an ugly thing and they were kind of devastated by the whole thing. And so um, basically I just went with, at this point, there was just um, kind of the Westerners and um, a Garoon cook. So Garoons are lower down in elevation. They're kind of in the middle hills. And so they were, he was, they're uh, less tied to a lot of the conflict. So basically we just brought some uh, support people for the middle elevation. Uh, I mean, for the base camp. And we were just going to, I was just going to have to guide everything on this one, but it was only 7,000 meters, kind of a straightforward, much easier peak to do. So it was going to be pretty good, but um, yeah, we had one person who got really sick and. Um, Two of the people didn't want to, were worried about what would happen climbing with her. And so they decided they wanted to kind of do their own thing. And so that got us down to basically a team of three. And so we, um, me and this one other guy, Jake, a super strong climber. He, um, yeah, and just an amazing human being, really great guy. So he and I hauled loads up and established camp one and then a camp two. And, um, the whole time we know the monsoon's coming because people always summit Everest between May 20th and June 1st. I mean, you'll see sometimes a little earlier, sometimes a little later, um, but those are basically at your window. There's about a two week window when you can climb. And we knew that two week window was getting close to being, to being over because we'd had to get the permits. We'd had to, go to Annapurna. We did the Annapurna tra track and so forth to get to where we needed to be. So yeah, we got camp two established. And, and so we kind of were like, all right, well, what are we going to do here? We got this camp two established. Um, and Jake and I brought all a bunch of gear up there. So we had everything ready. And um, so we looked around, looked at the camp. I was like, all right, this is a safe place. We can, you know, it's, it's a good location. We walked the perimeter, sort of felt good about it. And so because she was having issues, he was like, all right, I'll take her back down so she doesn't go alone. And you just stay up here. And then I was like, and I said, well, I'll collect the samples, you know, because we wanted to sample all the way up. So I was like, I'll collect samples, uh, really get camp established here. And then you guys can go down. She can rest for a couple of days and then come back up. And so well, that's what we ended up doing. So we goes to sleep, you know, I go to sleep. I wake up the next day and it's a beautiful, beautiful day. I'm like um, thirsty because I, we you know, got in late. We had hauled all this stuff, done all this stuff. So I was super thirsty. I was like, all right, I'm going to get up. I'm going to get some snow to melt for my uh, water and as well as I'm going to boil some, make some coffee, just sit and relax. And uh, I'll start processing the samples because the samples take hours to process. So I was like, all right, get out, go do this. It'll take 30 minutes. Then I'll come back and spend my day doing my science. So I start walking um, away from the tent towards where I wanted to sample. And um, I hadn't, I'd gone a decent ways, but not very far. And all of a sudden, I mean, it's like bright sun, like hurting my eyes. It's so sunny. And um, suddenly it's just pitch black. I'm like falling. Um, you, you know how when you, I don't know if you've ever, um, if you're in an airplane and it suddenly loses elevation and your stomach goes up, 
uh, rises. That's the way it felt like. I, I could feel I was free falling. And it was one of those things where my mind as a climber is like, there's only one reason you free fall and you don't live through it. You just fell in a crevasse. And so just, you know, split second thoughts were going through my mind of, all right, well, you know, that's uh, basically I'm, I'm dead. And I'm bouncing back and forth on the two sides of the crevasses. I'm going down. And then all of a sudden it's just, oof, and I feel pain. Um, and I'm just laying there. And if you've ever had the wind knocked out of you, that's, uh, I had the wind knocked out of me. So you're just <gasps> trying to find a way to breathe and um, figure out, you know, what the heck's going on. I finally catch a breath and I'm laying there on the piece of ice going, what just happened? And I sort of look down at my legs and they're just dangling over this huge, like hundred foot deep void. And I'm just kind of halfway wedged onto a little block of ice that's wedged in the middle. So I, uh, crawl to you know, kind of, and I can't move my arm. I'm laying on this one arm and I can't move, you know, like half of my body. And so I have to like get my ice axe and just pull myself onto the ledge and then figure out what the heck I was going to do. So, like I said, I didn't have much with me. The only thing I basically had was my ice axes because I was going to collect samples. And I always carry the axes in case something like this would happen. Um, and then I had my camera so that I could, because normally, and my GPS, because I was going to GPS where the samples were. And I normally take as part of my science, I take a picture of the GPS and I take the uh, eight directions, the north, south, east, west, northeast, southeast, so forth. And so a big part of what I do is taking pictures to record it. And so I was down there sort of looking around, trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do. And I just didn't really even know. Um, I was sort of facing one direction, looking up at the hole, and I could see off to my right, it belled out. And so it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the snow was like sort of stuck my uh, ice axe out experimentally. And it was kind of like whipped cream. Because basically what would happen is warmer, moist air would come across and it would fall down the crevasse. And as it fall, fell, it uh, frosted, basically. So it was like the whole crevasse was covered in frosting. And so if you tried to like swing an axe in it, it would just slide because you couldn't get deep enough to actually hit the... Um, well, you could. You just had to dig in deep. But uh, So it wasn't a very good uh, thing. So I knew I was probably, and especially because I, I couldn't use my right arm. And so, I've, well, let me stop you there because you're sort of you're sort of glancing over the uh, yeah. the injuries that you had. You were down seventy some odd feet. Yeah, and I'm just trying to figure out walls. what to do. And I thought, well, let me take some pictures because you know when I get out of this, you know my friends are going to bust my balls and say, oh, it wasn't that bad. It was probably only like ten feet. But also more than that, uh, you know, I I wanted. You know, because I was hurting and I was like, well, I'll take pictures. I want my mom and family to be able to see, you know, where I was at and what I was doing. So I took a few pictures and then they were just like, it was dark. You couldn't see anything. I was like, all right, let me see what a movie looks like. And I flipped it over to movie and I mean, the lighting, it just was incredible. So I was like, all right. And so, you know, normally when I take a movie as, as part of my research, I explain what I'm seeing. And it actually 
turned out to be incredibly, I don't know if therapeutic's the right word, but calming because I just, I was like, well, yeah, I just fell on this hole and well, what am I going to do? All right, well, let's take a, let's talk through this. And I looked over to the one side, I was like, that's too big. I can't go that way. Um, look over here. It actually looks like it gets narrower if I go to my right and maybe I can stem. And because I knew I couldn't, I tried to pick up my arm. I was like, all right, yeah, this arm is done. And the reason was because when I was falling, I had had my ice axe. And so I had always envisioned, like in the movies, you throw your arm out and you hook the ice axe. Yeah, and it was, it was just an agony. It, um, if, if you've ever dislocated your shoulder, I mean, I dislocated it, ripped it totally out of the socket. And uh, even when I got back to the hospital, that was one of the first things they were trying to do. Cause I was just like, Oh, my shoulder, you know, can you guys relocate it? And they were like, Oh, let's try and relocate it. And they're, they're trying to like get it back in. And they're like, going, <laughs> and I'm screaming. And finally they're like, Oh, just put him under it. And I guess it took them like 20 minutes to get back in because so much stuff had ripped. Well, let's go back to the crevasse. Oh yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so you're, you're down there, you're on the block. You're, you've, taking sense of where, where you're at, you, you actually film it, the scientist in you takes over, but your shoulder's dislocated, something in the arm's broken, you have internal bleeding. If I remember, your ribs are cracked, many of them. Yeah, I had six broken ribs. And um, then I had a bunch of broken vertebrae as well. And thankfully, they were non-displaced fractures. And so I had six broken vertebrae and it Again, it hurt, actually it hurt the shoulder, but it didn't um, uh, impair my ability to use the other arm or my legs. I had sort of smashed the one knee, but and it was bleeding, so I would just leave blood the whole way up. But it, my legs were working fine, so that if I hadn't had working legs and at least one working arm, I, same thing, I never would have gotten out of there. I was super lucky. And one, it was early in the morning, so it was bright sun, um, even all the way down as low as I was. I mean, it was cold as heck. Um, and it was before um, I started doing the video. That was kind of like I, when I was just initially thinking it through. I'm like, all right, can I climb out? I can't go that way. I, you know, I can't move my arm. Um, and then I started thinking, well, you know, can my team save me? You know, they're going to come back in two days. I'm like, and I'm breathing and I can see my breath. And I look down and I can see my uh, gloves are already icing over. Because in that down in that crevasse, it was like a meat storage locker. You know, it was probably I don't know what how cold it was, but it was incredibly, incredibly cold. And I knew, you know, a few hours at most was all I was going to last down there. Um, and then I thought about my team again, since the woman was having so many issues, she wouldn't be able to uh, lend much assistance. So, um, and I knew Jake couldn't do it by himself. So I just I knew I had to get out of there. I just there were no other options. And that was, I was like, well, I'll take a couple pictures before I leave and then started talking. And again, that's what really kind of calmed me down. It was like the scientist, you know, the, the focused thinker took over. And I was like, all right, here are my options. What can I do? How can I approach this? Um, all right, I got to go that way. I don't know. And so then each time I would stop, I was doing the same thing, trying to get, you know, kind of pictures of where I was. And I just, I found it very, uh, soothing maybe or it helped me focus kind of at the same time how did you physically move through that crevasse to get to the narrow parts well so uh basically it was effectively two sheets of ice and um 
every once in a while there were chunks of ice sort of stuck between them. And so I would just move from one chunk of ice to the next one. And thankfully they kind of went up, but so I was just ice climbing. So I, I was ice climbing on a vertical sheet of really hard ice and you know, it was 200 feet below me. So I'm doing kind of a, you know, WI4, WI5 moves, uh, free soloing, you know, with a basically death below me. So, um, and so I would just try and, uh, and, and I'm at 6,000 meters or 20,000 feet. So every breath, you're just like, ah, 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 like breathing, like somebody running a sprint or something or a marathon. And, um, of course with cracked ribs and blood filling up my chest, incredibly difficult. And so I would just try and go as, and yeah, I couldn't go fast because I couldn't make a mistake. And so as expeditiously as possible, I would move from block of ice to block of ice. And um, like I said, I just, I got lucky that they were kind of moving upward until eventually I reached kind of the fresher part of the crevasse. And so the old parts, it had separated and they were just super rock hard ice. And then they had that kind of whipped cream on top of them as the uh, air deposited its moisture. And so as I began to move towards that narrower part, I got to the fresher and fresher stuff. And so I reached a point where there was no more of the whipped cream, which was good, but it also was all freshly fractured. And so whereas earlier I had just been putting my ax in and it was solid ice, now I would put an ax in and just pull it down and all the loose stuff would come tumbling down. I felt like a bull in a china shop. I was just constantly ripping it down to look for something hard enough to sink an ax in. But on the flip side, there were more there were footholds and stuff. So I actually, it wasn't as much degree of difficulty. Um, but the key was, it was in order to reach where it was so narrow, I mean, it was only 70 feet straight up, but it was probably four or 500 feet I had to go to the right. Um, I look back on the footage and I recognize it pretty well. And yeah, I see, I don't, I can't even see where I began. You know, it's one of those things where as I look at the past footage and, oh yeah, I remember that landmark and so forth. And yeah, it was a long trip to the um, to the right, effectively, because the whole time I was sort of facing the one side. So, plus you're racing time, aren't you? Racing daylight, sort of. But again, because I because it was probably eight or nine when I fell in. So to be honest, that never even entered my my brain uh, in terms of racing daylight. It was more racing the cold because um, I could feel you know my hands season up and uh just everything getting colder and colder and granted i'm using every ounce of energy i have so that kind of kept me warm but again all i I don't have anything on all i was wearing was just a light t-shirt a a pair of wind pants and um just a little jacket kind of liner gloves so i'm in you know these incredibly cold conditions with utterly inadequate gear yeah i I was only expecting to be out 15 minutes in the sun so the only the thing I got really lucky with was I had my big 8,000 meter boots. And so my feet never got cold, never, you know, I had 100% use of my feet and lower legs. And that is what I spent most of the time on. Yeah, was just, yeah, I had my crampons. Yeah, I had the crampons on that one. Um, and yeah, I know it's just front pointing the whole way for the first quite a bit of it. So once yeah. I reached that one area, I kept going through all that broken stuff and it just kept getting narrower and narrower. 
And finally, at one point, I could just lean back and I was on the wall and I was like, ah, thank goodness. And um, so then I started climbing sort of straight up, but there was this huge block of ice above me that I was afraid I would knock down. So I moved over, climbed up a little bit, and there was another smaller block of ice that was similar. And I thought, well, all right, I'll just kind of knock it to one side. And instead, it fell down, and it almost knocked me back all the way back down where I began. Um, So I kept having to move to the right to avoid all this stuff. And finally, I reached a point where I could, it was like this big a hole, but the snow was only a couple inches deep. So it was, so the light was coming through. So I could see it was the surface. And so I just finally could reach it and kind of pull the snow out of the way. And it felt like I was digging out of my own grave, digging myself out of my own grave. And uh, suddenly then there was light and it was wonderful. But at the same time, that little opening, it was kind of belled like this. and so. I get up there to the opening and I start wiggling my way out and uh, I get out to about my waist and my legs are splayed as far as they can go. And I'm stuck because um, it's all fresh kind of powder up there. And so all I needed was one spot where I could hook an ice axe, like one um, solid piece of ice or, but instead I would just swing the axe and it would just slide through the snow. So it was like, you know, if I made a mistake getting out, I'd go all the way back down and I obviously wouldn't come back out. So, um, and it took a minute or two just to psych myself up and be like, you know, you, it's this or die. And so it was just one of those things where I pulled my legs up as high as I could and just sort of one, two, three, uh, and just sort of jumped, dived like a belly flop onto the snow and threw my axe out as far as I could and sunk it and pulled myself so that I wouldn't fall back into the crevasse. And uh, that was actually one of the worst times. And uh, finally I was like, oh, dude, I'm I'm out. I feel good. I can go back to camp and uh, call for help. And so I tried to stand up. And that's when I realized that I was still a long way from being alive because I, I stood up and immediately just fell. And I've, you know, I've played rugby for 20 hours straight. I've done so many crazy um, sports things and climbing things. And I've never been that utterly, absolutely depleted um, to the point where I couldn't stand up or walk. And so I had to, uh, so I was thinking it was going to be like 20 minutes back to the tent or not even that five minutes back to the tent. And instead it took hours. I had to drag myself down the hill um, cause I was kind of on this little bit of a rise to the camp and, uh, yeah, just drag myself down that hill slowly over the hours. And then I started wondering about the light because I knew that, you know, a helicopter can't fly at night. So I knew it was going to take a helicopter to get me out. And then I started thinking about it. I was like, well, because Nepal is 12 hours different from the U S and so I knew that because it was three or four, everyone was going to be asleep. And so there was no one I could text and sort of say, hey, um, are you, you know, I need a helicopter, send, send the Calvary. And on the flip side, I didn't have a sat phone because we were, you know, we're a nonprofit science group. So we didn't have money to on a fancy cell phone. And so we had a satellite texter. And the way the text was set up was uh, I would send updates into Facebook. 
And so I thought, oh, that'll actually work out well. I'll send the update to Facebook. And then whoever's awake, when they finally see it, they'll start getting help. And so I sent um, probably, uh, it, it was like Twitter. You only get whatever, 144 characters or whatever it is. And so I had to send probably four or five of these little updates. Um, and sure enough, somebody from Hawaii was awake. And um, Rebecca Cole was, works at the University of Hawaii and is on our board and has been a super, you know, she's led a bunch of our expeditions and just an incredible person too. And she um, was thankfully awake and basically called in the Calvary. It was like, oh, crap. And uh, got, um, got uh, a helicopter ordered. But by the time we got everything taken care of, it was getting dark. And so they were like, well, we'll come get you in the morning, but you know, there's nothing that can be done this, this evening. So I, uh, knew I was going to have to somehow survive that night. And hopefully, you know, I knew I was bleeding internally, but I didn't know how bad or if I'd be able to survive it or not. Long night. <laughs> yeah, the longest of my life for sure. Um, I was lucky because I had brought some uh, painkillers. And so that helped deal with the pain to some extent. But the problem was because I only had one arm, I couldn't, um, I was dying of thirst. I mean, I had gone out to get water and then I'd spent, you know, eight incredibly taxing hours climbing out and then dragging myself back to the tent. So I was as dehydrated as it's possible for a human being to be. And I, there was, I could hear a little bit of water in the canteen, but I had a Nalgene and there's just, you know, I was using my teeth. I couldn't get it open. And so for hours, anytime I would move, I would hear the water shroshle, but I couldn't get to it. And it was basically the same with food. I, you know, all I could do is I found a couple of goos, had those, and that was the only food I had the entire uh, time. So I was, yeah, hungry, thirsty, and just in agony because, like I said, my shoulder was dislocated. And I had to basically sit kind of at an angle so that I would not, I would encourage my chest to not fill with blood. I was worried if I laid down, it would, the whole chest would fill and I'd die. I had to kind of find the right angle. And uh, yeah, I always laughed because once I finally, people started waking up and I started, was able to text with my mom and other people. Uh, two people <laughs> told me, oh, whatever you do, don't fall asleep, you know, in case you have a concussion or whatever. And it was just like, boy, there is no way. I'm in way too much pain. I could never even dream of sleeping, you know, it was just in agony. But just like everything, eventually, no matter how terrible something in life is, it, it always ends. So um, thankfully this ended in a good way. Eventually I heard the helicopter. What were your thoughts up. when you heard the whack, whack, whack of those blades coming up? The helicopter pilot came and he went to the crevasse and was going to lower a Sherpa down in the crevasse to pull me out of the crevasse. And it was like, what, how, where did you hear that from? But it was because, you know, the message has gotten passed along so many times because um, I was telling, you know, everybody, no, I'm in the tent. At that point, I couldn't move. You know, my body was just locked up. And um, yeah, so I hear the helicopter circle. I hear it go down um, to base camp. They dropped off the doors and the fuel and everything. And then they come up to me and they circle that crevasse like six times. And kind of are hanging out. I'm just like, what are they doing? And um, then they start flying away. I'm like, oh, my goodness. 
but like I said, I just, I was close to death and I couldn't unzip the door. Uh, I couldn't do anything. And thankfully I hear him come back and the guy sits down and the Sherpa comes uh, who was with him. So it was him and a Sherpa. Uh, the Sherpa guy comes running and opens the door. He's like, Oh, he's in here. And, um, so he just, I'm laying on a sleeping pad and I'm like, I can't move. And he's like, all right. He grabs the sleeping pad I'm on and just drags me across the snow. And there's all these bumps and everything. And y'all got the dislocated shoulder. I'm like, ah, screaming as we're going. We're going do, 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 do. Um, but yeah, that's what the pilot told me. He's like, yeah, they said you were in the crevasse. Um, we couldn't find you there. And so we figured we didn't know what had happened. And so we were leaving. But then I don't ever like to leave without a client. He was this German guy. I don't ever like to leave without the client. And so I, I decided just to check the tent just for the heck of it. And I was like, oh, thank goodness he did. You know, otherwise, well, I'd still be there or whatever. So, yeah, it, it was one of those things that it was a – the accident itself was terrible, really bad luck. Again, it was a safe area. We had sort of scouted out. It looked good. Had done basically everything we could. And so it was terrible luck that that happened, but then everything that happened afterwards was as good as it could have gotten. You know, the, I had plenty of light. I had two ice axes with me. I was warm enough that I was able to to text or get a helicopter on the way the night before I had the painkillers to uh, survive the night that way. Um, And then the helicopter came back for me. So it's like you look at the things and I feel incredibly lucky at everything that happened. But what I want to ask you is, is the, what about mental training? I mean, on your, on your earlier climbs to Everest, you talked about seeing a number of bodies that are just left on the mountain. They're, they're dead climbers still out there. What separates the climbers under those extreme conditions that simply lay down and die and those who keep moving and survive those who fall down into the crevasse and just give up. And those who get out, what separates those? Yeah. Well, and that really is the trillion dollar question because, um, and you see it a lot in movies because the people who win aren't the, usually the strongest or the fastest or the, you know, smartest or best looking or whatever. It, you, you know, we always like movies about underdogs. And the reason is because a lot of times underdogs are the ones who actually do win, you know, and I definitely am. I know so many climbers that are better than I am. And I know so many people that can do everything better than I can. But at the end of the day, because I'm not the best, it's forced me to try harder, to compete harder, to um, push myself further and not accept no for an answer. And so I think that's at the end of the day, um, the more used to adversity people are and the more that they've overcome to get somewhere, they're the ones who are more likely to survive. And if they've, you know, everything's come super easy to them and they haven't had to work, then when bad things come, it's really easy just to go, oh, well, someone will save me or um, I don't really, you know, they just aren't used to pushing themselves that hard. So. And it really is amazing the difference in who kind of steps forward and uh, you know wants to keep going and who doesn't. And it, uh, that's what I, that's kind of the only um, commonality as I've found is the more they've had to overcome to get wherever they are, the more again resilient they are to 
to facing challenges and the less likely they are to stop. If you allow yourself to be turned around because it's a bad day or um, because the scenery is not as good as you want it or if little things turn you around, um, when the big things come along, you're not ready for them. What's in store for the future? That's the COVID question of the century, isn't it? Paul's starting to open up a little bit. The only thing I could, I've been doing is trying to stay fit, stay engaged with search and rescue and other groups because just because there's no official expeditions, a lot of people are still getting themselves hurt. And so we've had to do a lot of calls and um, it's the million dollar question. <laughs> so for folks who want to uh, learn more about and, and follow your research and your expeditions, how can you do that? Um, the easiest thing is uh, climberscience.com is our webpage. Um, or johnall.com is my webpage. It has a lot of links to the different uh, things that I work on. Now, you've written Icefall. Any more books in the works? I tell you, I've thought a lot about it because, yeah, with Icefall, I was trying to really think it was kind of approach it from a scientific standpoint um, and didn't talk much about the personal aspect. I mean, I did, but, you know, the people I've climbed with and so forth, so... I'd like to get more into uh, to write something that kind of more addresses how we as climbers who are interested in making a difference in the environment can, uh, can actually go out and do that. So uh, more of a instruction manual, more something like uh, Twight's book uh, for kind of citizen science and climber science. So. Excellent. Well, uh, I hope you'll come back and join us and <laughs> tell us some more of your stories. Sounds good. Look, we'd look forward to it. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world.